Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 17th, 2023, and my guest is psychologist Adam Mastriani. He is a postdoc research scholar at Columbia University's Business School. His Substack newsletter is Experimental History. Adam, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks so much for having me. Our topic for today, Adam, is a shocking and exhilarating essay that you wrote on peer review. It is not often that peer review and exhilarating appear in the same sentence. But I loved your piece. It blew my mind for reasons I think will become clear as we talk. Let's start with uh, the idea behind peer review. What What's the, you know, if you ask normal people, people not like you and me. Sure. Uh, who are who are what I would call believers in the system. <laughs> what would they say is is the, you know, the whole, how's it supposed to work? Uh, I, I think probably most people haven't really thought about it. But if you ask them to, they would go. Well, I assume that when a scientist publishes a paper, um, it goes out to some experts who check the paper thoroughly and make sure the paper is right. Um, maybe, and maybe if you really push them to think about it, they would say, well, they probably, you know, maybe like reproduce the results or something like that, just to make sure that everything is, is ship shape and then the paper comes out. And this is why we can generally trust the things that get published in journals. Of course, we know in any system, obviously, sometimes things slip, slip through. Um, and all of that is a totally reasonable assumption about how the system works, uh, and it is not at all how the system works. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. You, you could argue it's kind of like how the Kang might have a taster, you know, or yes. two even even better. Yes. I mean, if the taster's got some idiosyncratic defense mechanism sure. against uh, toxins, you, you know, having two people taste the food and making sure neither die, uh, it's just like a, a, a good system. Uh one of the things I learned for your paper, I didn't really learn it, but I often emphasize how there are a lot of things we know that we don't really remember to think about. Uh, one of the things that your paper reminds me to think about is that this system, which, of course, uh, I grew up in over the last 40 years as a Ph.D., this system is kind of new yeah. in the history of science. It's not a it hasn't really stood the test of time. It's it's a, an experiment, you call it. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand because uh, I think this is true kind of across the board of human experience. We kind of assume that whatever world we were born into, uh, unless told otherwise, this is just kind of the way it's been forever. And so there, there's sort of this cartoon story, I think, in a lot of people's heads that like, you know, somewhere in the 1600s or 1700s, we started doing peer review. We had journals. And, you know, before that, it was people writing manuscripts in the wilderness or whatever. Before that, it was it was Newton publishing uh, his stuff. But then, you know, we developed modern science um, and uh, and it's been that way since. And that cartoon story just isn't true, um, that it is true that uh, around the 16 and 1700s, we have the first things that look like almost like they could be scientific journals that we have today, but they work very differently. A lot of times they're affiliated with um, some kind of association and their incentives are different. They want to protect the integrity of the association. Um and they're just one part of a really diverse ecosystem of the way that scientists communicate their ideas. So they're also writing letters to one another. Um, there are basically magazines or, or for a long time, scientific communication looks much more like journalism looks today that they cover scientific developments as if they are news stories. Um, and so you, you have a bunch of different people doing a bunch of different things. And it really isn't until the middle of the 20th century that we start centralizing and developing the system that we assume today has always existed, which is if you, you know, quote unquote, do science, you send your paper off to a scientific journal. It is subjected to peer review and then it comes out. Um, and all of that is very new. Well, you, you kind of made a, an intentional leap there. You said that then it comes out. That's it. If it's accepted. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. And, and for, for listeners who are not in the um, <clears throat> kitchen of journal submission, rejection or acceptance, sometimes revise and resubmit, it's called, 
or your some flags are raised and questions are raised, flags uh, of things that might be wrong, and you have a chance to, to try to make the people who reviewed it happy. The people who reviewed it, by the way, are called referees uh, in, in most situations, and, and there's usually two. Uh, so that is the modern uh, world. It, it, the other thing that, that you haven't mentioned is it takes a really long time. It's kind of, again, I think shocking for people who aren't in this world. Um, what happens is you submit your paper, and you there's a tendency, especially when you're younger, as, as, you, as you are, Adam, relative to me, to you know, sit by your inbox. In the old days, it was a mailbox, but in the, now it's an inbox, email inbox. Kind of like any day now, because I sent it, what, three hours ago, I'll be getting a, a, uh, a rave review from my two referees, and the editor will say, I am thrilled to publish this in its own supplemental uh, celebratory edition of our journal because it's so spectacular and uh, life-changing for the people in the field. But in fact, it takes a very long time. Uh, sometimes people are sent a paper to referee, and they decide they don't want to, but they don't tell the, <laughs> the journal editor right away. Eventually, because they think, well, maybe I'll do it. And they eventually tell the editor, you know, I just don't have time. The editor sends it to someone else. And even when the two referees agree to review it, they don't review it quickly. There's no real, sometimes there's a sort of a deadline, but it's a very frustrating experience for a young scholar, right? Yeah, I think uh, my experience so far has been that if there, uh, if you can, if, if there's only a year in between when you first submit the paper and when it comes out, uh, you're doing pretty good. Uh, and that's Shocking. and that's assuming that uh, that you get it into the first place that you submit it, uh, which is is not the average outcome. Um, other places, it could take years. And and certainly if you are rejected from one journal or a few journals, it could take multiple years. Um, and this is part of why I think so many people I know come to despise the things that they publish by the time that they get published. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we should add that. Um again, this is only for the cooks in the kitchen. Uh, there are a lot of papers that are rejected, even if they are true, because they are not worthy or considered worthy of the journal you sign. So they're sort of top tier, and then there's second tier, then there's third tier journals. So you might aim high. The author, the referees might say, oh, this paper is fine. There's nothing really objectionable in it, but the result's not that interesting. I don't think it merits... Uh, publication in the journey the journal of fascinating results and so you're going to have to send it to the journal of somewhat interesting findings um right that that's a common phenomenon yes and the funny thing from the the user standpoint of science like when i'm working on a project and i want to know what has been done that's relevant to this i truly do not care which journal it was in and so all of this work that was done to figure out like, okay, should this go out to a mailing list of, I don't know how many people, nature or science uh, email, say it's 100,000 versus it should go out to 20,000 people or, or whoever. It doesn't matter to me because now I just want to know what did people do? Um, and the letterhead on fine. the top of the paper doesn't matter. Um, so all that work when when someone's actually trying to use the thing uh, turns out to, to be unimportant. This is done like, mainly for purposes of figuring out who should have high status. Yeah. Ooh, um, definitely a kitchen, inside kitchen remark. <laughs> uh, one other thing, again, for people not in this world, uh, at least in economics, and, and I don't know about other fields as much, but I think it's often true, at least in economics, uh, the person who is reviewing the paper, the referee, knows who wrote it. Not always, but even when you don't know, you can usually figure it out because yeah. of what the topic is, or you can read the bibliography and see which which author got cited the most times, often a hint. Uh, but but the person who wrote the article often, almost always, does not explicitly know the reviewer. So it's called a, a blind review. It's not double blind, but it's a blind review from the perspective of the author. And um, often authors will thank, quote, an anonymous referee for a helpful comment. The only other thing I would add, again, is that most of the time papers are not rejected because they're not true. Yeah. They're rejected because they're not interesting or they're yeah. not profound or the results are not sufficiently important. And so the – or they're not completely convinced. There might mm -hmm. be things left out. So the revise and resubmit comment from a referee is, you know, you didn't deal with this. Deal with this and maybe we'll take it. And that just 
adds another layer of delay to, and uncertainty about the public final publication result. Yeah, and uh, and this is where I think a lot of people misunderstand what the process is doing, that, that they think what's mainly happening when a paper is under review is that it's being checked. Um, and so someone looks at the data, someone looks at the analysis, but most often nobody is looking at the data, nobody is looking at the analysis. It actually takes a ton of time to vet a paper to that level. You'd have to open up their data sets, which by the way, often they're not provided. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, sometimes you do, but a lot of times you don't. Um, you'd have to redo all of their analyses. It would, it would, it's a, a big undertaking to actually uh, check the results of a paper, which is why it's virtually never done. Although that is, of course, maybe the single most important thing that this process could do rather than provide some kind of aesthetic judgment. Um, when I encounter a paper, I'd love to know, like, well, did anybody just rerun the code and see if there's some kind of glaring issue or if the code actually works or if the data actually exists? Whatever aesthetic judgment the reviewers applied, I mean, I am also a, like an expert consumer. I can look at it, too, and go, oh, I'm not completely convinced. Um, but and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but also I don't even get to see what the reviewers said uh, most times. Most places don't publish the reviews. So all that I know is the reviewers said uh, they didn't say enough disqualifying things to prevent it from being published in this journal. But I don't know if, if they said, you know, I'm really convinced by this point, but not that point, or here's another alternative explanation that I think warrants inclusion. I don't get to see any of that uh, as a consumer um, because generally the reviews disappear forever once the paper is published. And you're talking about empirical uh, work. Uh, there's theoretical work as well where, you know, there's a mathematical proof, say, or a intellectual uh, analytical set of, of postulates and, and analysis. And it's, I think, well, you claim, and I, I'm afraid you're off, you're right, at least often, that the referees don't actually read the paper. Uh, they kind of eyeball it. They mm -hmm. say, I think what we say to ourselves is, well, if this person's at such and such university, I'm sure they got the equation. I'm sure the math's right. I mean, I mean, yeah. it wouldn't make a like a algebraic error. So I'm not going to literally <laughs> check their equations. That would be tedious. Take hours. The only question I'm going to generally answer as a referee is, as a referee is, is this result interesting? Is mm -hmm. it uh, consistent uh, with with the analysis, the claims, or are the claims consistent with each other? And it, does the person deal with previous literature? That, that's been written on this is this novel, um, but it becomes the real question, which uh, your your essay deals with quite frankly. Which is, I mean, it's an interesting idea. It sounds plausible. Does it work? Yeah. Does peer review work? I mean, it really depends on what you hope to get out of it. Um, my position would be no, uh, in part because I think what we would all like to get out of it is um, some kind of checking. We'd like to know if the papers that we're reading are true or not. And the system obviously doesn't do that. Um, and it doesn't do that, but it comes at extreme costs. So we've talked about how long it takes the paper to get through the process, but there's also the time spent uh, by people reviewing it, which one paper estimates that as 15,000 person years per year. Um, and if you, which is a lot of years, especially when these are scientists, these are people who are supposed to be working on the most pressing problems of humanity. Um, and instead, they're spending a lot of time sort of glancing at papers and going, ah, not interesting. Ah, this one's interesting. Um, and a lot of those papers um, will never be cited by anybody. Um, it's really hard to get a precise estimate of, of the, the number of papers that are never looked at any, by anybody ever again. But we know that it's not zero. And, it, and, uh, and I think a reasonable um, estimate in the social sciences is something like 30 uh, percent. And that would probably go up if you exclude papers that are only ever cited by the people who wrote them. Um, and so that, that's a lot of time spent on a paper that didn't even matter in the first place. Yeah, the number I saw recently was 80%, that basically 80% of papers are never looked at again. Um, a bit harsh, could be true. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you have to peer, you know, like get a referee to see whether that's a true <laughs> statement. Yeah. But uh, and I, I, to be fair to listeners out there who are in this world, some of them are sitting here, sitting listening, saying, this is the most cynical bunch of nonsense I've ever heard. <laughs> I've reviewed dozens and dozens of papers yeah. in my time. I take my responsibilities as a referee extremely seriously. You get paid, by the way, often. Not always, but often. Uh, a, a modest amount. And sometimes there's been a big innovation in recent years. Get paid more if, if you do it in a timely fashion, mm -hmm. uh, which is 
pleasant. I mean, that's nice for the, the submitter, the author. But, you know, how do you answer that? Come on. This, you're just – this is all – you're claiming people don't read the paper. You have no evidence for that. That's just a, that's just a, a cultural uh, armchair thesis. Yeah. And I'm a serious reviewer. I, I make sure the papers are right. I read them carefully. I vet them. And I am confident that the papers I have published, you know, more or less true. <laughs> uh, to that reviewer, I'd say thank you for your service. Um, and you are you are a lone hero on the battlefield because there have been studies done where um, where they look at well, on average, what reviewers do. Uh, the British Medical Journal, um, when it was led by Richard Smith, um, did a lot of this research where they would deliberately put errors into papers, um, some major errors, some minor errors, send them out to the standard reviewers that the journal had, uh, get the reviews back and just see what percentage of these errors did they catch. Um, and on average, uh, across the three studies that they, that they did on this, it was about 25%. Um, and these were really important and major errors. For instance, the way that we randomized the supposedly randomized controlled trial wasn't really random, um, which is really important. Uh, that's like a very key error to find. Uh, if you're doing a randomized controlled trial, it needs to be randomized. Uh, and for that particular error, only about half of people found it. And that's a very like standard one to look for. That should be very forward my, uh, in your mind when you're looking at a paper. Um, and so I believe, and, I, and I've heard from them as well, people who take their job really seriously. Um, and, uh, and I think they are the minority. Um, and what's most important about the system is how it works on average. Um, and I think on average, it doesn't work very well, certainly at catching major errors. And you can see this, uh, sorry, another piece of evidence is uh, when we discover the papers are fraudulent, where does that happen? Um, and you would think that if it was happening, uh, that if people were vetting the papers, it would happen at the review stage. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to find the dog that didn't bark, but I've never heard a single story of a, of a fraudulent paper being caught at the review stage. It's always caught after publication. Now, uh, so the paper comes out and someone looks at it and they go, that doesn't seem right. And they, uh, and purely of their own volition. And these people are the true heroes. Um, they just decide to dig deeper and find out, oh, it's all made up or the data isn't there. Often this, this is someone from within the world that the paper was published. So it's someone in the same lab, um, who goes, I just know that there's something creepy going on with these results. There was a big case in psychology, uh, last year where, a paper came out 10 years ago, this paper about signing at the top versus at the bottom. Uh, if you sign a form at the top, oh, this is a good story. If you sign, uh, the paper was all about, if you sign your name at the top of, of a paper where you have to attest to something, in this case, it was how many miles you drove a car. So obviously there's, uh, there's some incentive to lie on this because the fewer miles you drive, the less you have to pay. And so if you sign at the top, you should be more honest and you should report more miles than if you sign at the bottom. Uh, it's, it's like a very cutesy kind of, what's the logic? It's, uh, it's because of psychology. I don't know. This is kind of what we do. Like, oh, you know, you're reminded of, uh, you're not anonymous and, um, and it's sorry, the thing, the thing you're signing is specifically like, I'm going to be honest. And so if you do that at the beginning, uh, you're going to be more honest than if you do it at the end. And so they, they found that this is true in some real world data. Or they, I mean, this data turns out to not be real world because the data was obviously made up. Um, that paper comes out, it's put in PNAS, which is a very prestigious journal. Um, and 10 years go by and someone tries to replicate the results and they can't do it. Um, and so they publish their failure to replicate. That's all great. As part of publishing that failure to replicate, they also publish for the first time the raw data from the original study, which had never been published before. And uh, someone takes a look at it and notices that there are some weird things. For instance, this is it's an Excel spreadsheet, and half of the data is in a different font than the other half of the data. Or you also notice that if you plot the distribution of the miles that people claim to drive, it's totally uniform, which is really weird because when people report their miles, they almost certainly report, you know, like they don't report 3,657, they report 3,600 or 3,650. Uh, but people were just as likely in this data to report, you know, 57 as they were to report 50. Um, and, and so if you basically look a little closer, you realize that, like, this data is obviously fabricated. The, uh, like, the, the effect that they tried to show, they just added some numbers to the original data. Um, there's a great blog post on this on Data Collada, uh, who are some psychologists who do a lot of work on replication. Um, and so all of that happened 10 years after the original paper was published. And all the detective work couldn't even have happened at the beginning because the data was never made available to anybody. Um, so 
<laughs> so if we if we're not catching it at the review stage, uh, what exactly are we doing? Now, listeners may remember that back in 2012, I interviewed Brian Nozick, who's also a psychologist and has been a a very powerful voice uh, for replication. And again, if you're not in the kitchen, you wouldn't realize this. Replicating someone else's paper is almost worthless historically in over the last 50 years of this process. As if you have suspicions that a result might be true, you think, well, I'll go find out. I'll, I'll do it again. Well, if you find out that it is true, nobody wants to publish it. You're just, there's nothing new there. If you find out it's not true, maybe it isn't, maybe it is, but it, it's not a prestigious pursuit to verify past papers. So what Brian and others have done in this project uh, is to try to bring resources to bear to encourage people to do these kind of checking. And um, results have been deeply disturbing, uh, how few results replicate, particularly uh, in um, behavioral psychology. But that's just because that's where they started. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. it'll end up coming to economics. We know it's also true in medicine, certainly true in epidemiology. And uh, Brian and his co-authors, Jeffrey Spies and Matt Model, had a early version of, of your essay summed up in one beautiful phrase, published and true are not synonyms. Yes. Now, most people would say, oh, yes, well, more or less, or kind of, or yes, of course, there are some things that don't quite work. But your point really is, uh, I think, more thorough. And Andrew Gelman's also been on the program at Brian Back in 2014. And, and, and talk about all these issues, why fraud is an extreme case. There are many, many cases that are not fraudulent where due to various biases toward publication and other incentives that academics face, many of the results that are published in academic journals are not replic replicable, or excuse me, do not replicate when actually yep. tested. Um, why doesn't it? Why, why is this, why is this pro project uh, that, that we, okay, we were making fun of it a little bit at the beginning, but, but on the surface, the idea of having a, an esteemed expert in the field verify or at least check or vouch for uh, an unpublished result that, that that it merits publication, that would seem to be a pretty good system. Why isn't it working? Yeah. What kind of intuition do you have? I have my own, I'll share it, but what's yours? Yeah. I think part of it is that to to really vet a paper um, requires a ton of work. Um, I think it's much more work than we uh, expect uh, referees to do, uh, and it's certainly much more work than they actually do. Um, if you have to crack open a data set and load it into your statistical software and run the analyses, like almost certainly it's going to be really hard to do that because well, maybe the data isn't labeled properly. Um, uh, maybe they haven't provided the data for you. Maybe they haven't, you know, annotated their code in such a way that it's going to make it or even given you their code. Um, so all those things take a ton of time. Um, I think that's one reason why you have to pay a ton of attention. I mean, the, the other is if you want to replicate their study, um, I mean, some studies, yeah, you can just throw them on an online platform where you get participants like MTurk or something like that. And and the Data Collada guys, uh, the Open uh, Open Science Framework guys, this is mainly what they do. They take studies where you can do that. Um, now, that alone, you know, it, it costs you at least, you know, several hundred dollars to, to run that study and uh, and maybe an afternoon. Anything more than that. So say you wanted to replicate that study where they got actual data, supposedly, from a rental car company where people were reporting how much much they drove. I mean, that's going to take you months, if not years, to replicate that. Um, and, so, uh, and so it's really hard to check whether these results are actually true. <laughs> and I would add something additional, which is I think in my home field uh, of social psychology, if, for most results, it does not matter whether they're true or not. Um, and this, is, I think, is something that's often missing from when we talk about replication. We don't have a good sense of what are the things worth replicating. We know that these things got published, but do they actually matter? I think in most cases, the answer is no. Um, the uh, We've spent years now in my field trying to figure out a, a phenomenon called ego depletion, which is just this idea. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a more terrible way to describe it other than when you do boring stuff, you get tired. Um, and there's all this controversy over like, well, but do you uh, like, did that really happen? If you like, we do this task, we have to cross out every E on a page. Does that make you more likely to like eat a cookie than to eat a radish? afterward. Um, and I just can't get to the bottom of why we care. It's obviously true that you can get tired when you exert effort. Um, 
and and I don't know what we could find that would make us say uh, that like you don't get tired. Uh, all we're trying, to, all we're really figuring out is whether this particular task creates this particular result. Um, and I don't see any evidence that that particular task and that particular result are all that important. Um, this is maybe you know uh, unique to psychology where. We don't really have a paradigm, so it's really hard to know what matters and what doesn't. We don't have, you know, a periodic table where we go, "Well, we're missing number sixty-seven, so we really need to go find number 67. Uh, we're really, we're really uh, scrounging around in the dark. So, as an economist, you know, my summary of your insight about the time it takes is that just the incentives aren't there. You know, it's a certain there's a certain uh, principle. And conscientiousness that's expected for reviewers, for referees. You don't get paid very much, sometimes not at all. And um, there's very little professional gain. You do ingratiate yourself sometimes with an editor, which is pleasant. Uh, you know, they they will maybe look favorably, you might hope, on your future submissions uh, when you're on the other side of the fence. But there's just not much return to it. So people don't take it terribly seriously. Uh, if you have a rarefied and um, incorrect view of academic life, you would say, oh, but you won't you care about the truth. And of course, most scholars do. But if it means spending a year replicating the results and then corresponding with the author about through via the, by the way, via the editor in the keeping the process anonymous about what did you guys do with outline with with the zeros? Did, did you code it? If, if they didn't answer, did you code that as you never told me? Right, because there's a thousand decisions that you make yeah. in, in empirical work that are like that, and so it it's, just doesn't happen, and um, that's that's sad. And but this replication crisis, which again I think it, its home base is in psychology, but it's spreading, uh, you know, much more widely, is uh, is is it's kind of dramatic. It, it's not a very good system. The 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 idea of peer review, so. Uh, one more point, and, and I think listeners are saying, maybe out there, did they call this accelerating? Uh, I mean, it's it, it's kind of interesting, but so here comes the, for those of you who are still listening, here comes the accelerating part. There's really two two parts to it. And the first is, you say something quite profound, um, although I'm biased to love it, so <laughs> I confess that. Um, you say that this system is worse than nothing. It's one thing to say, okay, so sometimes it doesn't do its job. You know, sometimes it, it lets papers through that are maybe imperfect or, or rejects papers that are true but not, in, quote, interesting. But you say it's worse than that. What's your argument? So I think uh, if a system claims to uh, be doing something but it doesn't actually do it, if, if it gains trust uh, that isn't warranted, I think it leaves people worse off because they've been mislead, misled into trusting something that they shouldn't have trusted. And so uh, the analogy that, that I use is uh, if the FDA, if you found out that the, the way the FDA uh, figures out whether you know beef is tainted or, or, or uh, safe enough to sell on the market, they just send some guy around to sniff the beef. And if it smells bad, he goes, oh, don't sell it. Uh, if that's all they're doing, I think he'd be really upset because, of course, he's going to catch some things. But most of the tainted beef is not going to smell bad enough for this guy to, to catch it. Um, and so if you had known that that's actually what was going on, you might have done something else. You might have not purchased beef in the first place. You might have been willing to pay a company uh, that will show you how well they vet the beef to vet all your beef for you. Maybe you go in with a bunch of consumers. Maybe, you know, the, the private enterprise steps in. But what's really bad is to think that a system is trustworthy when it isn't. Um, and so an example of this is... Uh, this whole thing about uh, vaccines causing autism was in large part uh, fueled by a paper in The Lancet, which is an extremely prestigious medical journal, you know, with an N of 18 being like, hey, there's some kids who have autism and they also had vaccines uh, was sort of like this, the standard of evidence. And, you know, it's stamped with the imprimatur of The Lancet. Uh, and so people take it really seriously um, when like that paper wasn't ready for prime, like that claim wasn't ready for uh uh, the imprimatur of, of all the medical establishment going, now we know vaccines cause autism. I think what I've heard is at the time, actually, it was worth looking into. Um, and that's what was the state of the evidence was. Um, that's not the way that people take the evidence when we think that peer review uh, gives things the glow of truth. Um, that's part of why I think it's worth announcing. Plus, it also costs a ton of money and time. 
Uh, and so if it gives us an unclear benefit, but the cost is very obvious, uh, that I think is also evidence that it's worse than nothing. Yeah, I, I have to, I'm not going to name any names, but there's a long list of books that uh, claim to give us the latest science on various aspects of life. And that science is always peer-reviewed journal articles, many of which are false. <laughs> um, and yet people are reading them thinking they're true because after all, it was in the Lancet or it was in the journal or whatever. And uh, so that's the first point. Uh, the second point is um, to give you an idea of how widespread this is, this illusion, because someone might say reasonably, oh, Adam, come on. Nobody, everybody knows it's a somewhat flawed process. Nobody really um, – I don't think that's true. I'm, I'm going to give you the example of um, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, who has a chapter in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, on the phenomenon called priming. And priming is this idea that you, you say words related to, say, old people, and, and then you find out they walk more slowly. And I think we've talked about this on the program before. It's a, I've always found not to pass the sniff test, but it turns out it doesn't pass the replication test. Yeah. So my nose is not the really the criterion by which we decide whether it's true or not. But I, what's interesting about that is that what Kahneman wrote about it, and I salute his honesty. Uh, I, I'm going to read you a very short quote. He said, he said, he placed, he said, quote, I place too much faith in underpowered studies, referring to these primary results that were done with very small samples. And when larger samples came along, they did not replicate. Here's what he wrote. And this is the interesting part. He said, quote, my position when I wrote Thinking Fast and Slow was that if a large body of evidence published in reputable journals supports an initially implausible conclusion, then scientific norms require us to believe that conclusion. Implausibility is not sufficient to justify disbelief, and belief in well-supported scientific conclusions is not optional, close quote, meaning, okay, it doesn't pass the sniff test, but it was peer-reviewed. So your intuition might be, that's ridiculous. There's no way people do that. But it was peer-reviewed, so you have to accept it as science. So here's a Nobel Prize winner confessing that he has fallen prey to the very phenomenon you're talking about. Uh, this isn't just people writing uh, books purporting to, to convey science. Yeah, uh, which I think is really unfortunate um, that, like, you should aspire to have uh, the appropriate level of trust in a system um, – given its level of performance. Um, this is something that I really try to cultivate in my own mind, that uh, I know that when I see a paper in a published journal, that really all the vetting that's been done is someone kind of took a glance at it um, and thought it was interesting and didn't notice on a very light read uh, any obvious errors. Um, and so when I, when I read that paper, my, my initial reaction is always, could be, um, this could be true. And if I really want to know whether it's true or not, I unfortunately have to apply additional effort to it. Uh, and, and, and the amount of ideas that I'm actually willing to do that for is actually very small. Uh, and this is why I, I think like, you know, most people are very worried about whether uh, studies replicate. I worry about whether it mattered whether they were done in the first place. Um, because when I look back on the, the, in the papers that I published and I look at like, okay, of all the citations in here, what percentage were critical? to uh to my paper like what percentage of citations if they turned out to be false would affect my paper negatively um rather than just i'd have to delete a sentence um and on average my answer was like about 12 to 15 percent um and most of those are citations to the statistical packages that i use that if those aren't you know processing the numbers correctly under the hood that is very bad for me my, my results are uh, unlikely to be true and there's only a handful in any paper of this is an empirical result that if it didn't happen, uh, I'd be in big trouble. Um, and so for those, I'm willing to expend the effort to see whether they're true or not and really look at them closely. Um, for anything else, uh, when I look at it, I go, well, could be. I don't know. It's an interesting exercise to think about whether it might be true or not. Um, but I'm not going to bank on it. Yeah, and this is where we get to the first conclusion that I think is quite profound. But again, I confess it it, it plays so much to my biases. I, I I'm open to worrying that I've over um I'm overconfident in it. But but it is amazing to me that most people believe that more information is better. And um you know I have a book out Wild Problems where I talk about the challenge of making decisions when we don't have reliable information, like whether to get married, whether to have children, how many, whether to move to a new job, et cetera. 
Um, you don't have an empirical, a reliable empirical source. You don't have much information at all. And a lot of people respond to that to that book by saying, well, okay, yeah, it's not perfect, but you should try to get more information. And the more you have, the better, because you can make a more informed decision. And that requires an assumption that I think is not true. And this, uh, your point, I think, illustrates this beautifully. Kahneman point illustrates it beautifully. More information is better only if you can weigh it properly, only if you can assess it properly. Uh, if you overreact to it, if you over, if you're overly confident in the information, the imperfect information you get, make a different kind of error. And I think this is so unintuitive and so um, unpleasant. I've gone the other way. I find this really pleasant because again, it plays to what I like to think about the world and the reliability of, of much empirical work. But I think it raises a question for people on the other side that maybe you're being a little too overconfident about our ability as so-called rational people and the ability of our reason to consume information well. And, and when, I po when I complain about you know, empirical findings, people say, well, what's the alternative, using your gut? And the answer is <laughs> no, it's understanding that the information you have is not always reliable. It's amazing how hard that is to remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think behind this feeling of, uh, of you know, I need to get more information um, and, uh, and, and that'll help me make a better decision, especially in, in science, is this idea that, like, we are at the end of science. That, like, you know, in the past, uh, these were people who were you know, just uh, groping around in the darkness. They had no idea what they were doing. But fortunately, we were born into an era where we kind of have it all figured out. Now, obviously, there's a few mysteries left. And we're doing some stuff on the margins. But, but like, really, we're pretty much just crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Um, and I just think that that is so remarkably wrong, that, that history is going to continue. I mean, God willing, history will continue uh, after our lifetimes, and humanity will continue to... Uh, to produce uh, science and uncover knowledge, and we will look ignorant very soon. Um, and we will, and I think the thing that we will look most ignorant for is thinking that we weren't ignorant. Um, uh, and I see myself as one person in a very long history of of humans, and I think a really noble and beautiful history of trying to make us a little bit less ignorant. Um, but there isn't some threshold that we cross when we go. You know, we've come out of the dark ages, um, and now uh, now we understand. Um, we maybe understand a little bit more than we did before. And I think when you feel that way, you look around at the information coming out and you go, all of this could wash away tomorrow. Um, any of this could be completely untrue. Um, our understanding of the world could be revolutionized in the next 10 years. Um, and so don't get too attached to anything. Um, like you need to make decisions and you need to figure out what to do. Um, but you, you, th this level of certainty that I think that we want is impossible to get. Um, and so you, you need to come to terms with the fact that, like, you know, mainly we operate in the darkness. Uh, and I think that's actually very exciting because uh, there's so much left to do and so much left to discover. Yeah, I, I encourage listeners to go back. We'll link to it to the episodes uh, with Robert Burton on certainty. We have a real urge for it. Uh, it's very comforting. Uh, we don't like darkness. We like the light. We like to look where the light is for our keys under the lamppost. And that is not often, often that's not where the keys were lost. Uh, I also would mention uh, the Chuck Klosterman episode, but what if we're wrong? Um, I think a lot of people believe, well, that was you know, a few years ago. We had to worry about that, but not now. <laughs> now we know a lot more. It could be true, as you say, could be. Um, this brings us to, uh, to me, the most, the deepest insight of your essay, which I think is, um, applies to many, many things besides peer review, which is the following. I've been in this area now for over a decade, at least, going back to my interview with Brian Nozick. I've thought about it a lot, taken a lot of complaints from my peers in economics, from my skepticism about empirical work. It's colored the way I see essays like yours. I've confessed to that. But um, deep down, if you ask me, uh, well, what's to be done about it? And I, my natural thought has always been, well, we just have to make it better. I mean, we, we need more better incentives. The, the Open Science Project with Brian Ozick is a perfect example. He has funding to give people incentives to do checking and replication, which didn't doesn't pay much in prestige. But, okay, now we can compensate people. We have journals about it. They can add to their resume and so on and so forth. And we just need a better system. But you, you, you took a um, – you jumped the shark, Adam. <laughs> you actually suggested it's over. It, we tested it. 
<laughs> for the last 60, 80 years or so. Doesn't work. Get rid of it. Is that, is that a correct sum? I mean, it's a shockingly bold, outside-the-box idea. I loved it because I realized it never <laughs> crossed my mind. And it, it opens up the possibility there are many other areas where my inability to think outside the box is hampering my ability to come up with interesting alternatives. Yeah. Uh, is that a good summary? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would certainly say it doesn't work. And that is what I really would like people to have in their heads. And then what do we do next? I think there's many answers to that question. Um, some of the people that, that I heard from are, you know, feel the same way that you did that, you know, really, well, we have to make it work. We have to tweak it and we have to build new things. And, and I say, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like if clearly some people are invested in that, so go for it. Uh, I, I think I am uniquely uninterested in trying to control other people's behavior and to say, nobody should do this and everybody should do that. Um, what I'd like to do is, is make a historical claim, which is this is new and weird, an empirical claim, which is this did, doesn't seem to do the thing that we intend for it to do, um, and then leave it to the diversity of humanity to figure out what to do about that. I have my own answer, um, which is uh, I feel like I know the way that I do science the best, which is to write it in the words that I think I should use, to write it for a general audience so anyone can understand it, to include all the data and code and materials so that you know the very few people who want to open up that code and data and see exactly what I did and uh, and how it worked can do that um, and then put it out there for anybody to see um, and to trust that if my, if what I have to say is interesting and useful to people, that they will tell me uh, and they'll tell me how, it think, how they think it could be better. And this is exactly what I did um, about a month and a half ago. I was writing this paper with a collaborator of mine uh, named Ethan, who um, and we were trying to write this paper about sort of this like weird and speculative idea about imagination. We had all these studies and we were trying to write it up for a journal, and we felt like we couldn't do it without lying. That just at some point we had to imply that we knew how it worked, or study eight, we forgot why we ran it, and we have to figure out some way of maneuvering around the fact that we ran the study a few months ago, and it was very clear to us why we did it then, and now the results are interesting, but we can't re <laughs> we can't uh, uh, like revive <laughs> the reasoning that we had to, to do it in the first place. And, and we realized, like, we can't write this paper to in the way that a journal would force us to write it. Um, we can't pretend that it's related to all this literature that it's not actually related to. And so instead, um, he and I wrote it in regular words. And so when we got to study eight, we said, hey, we forgot why we ran this study. That's our bad. Um, we should have kept better notes. If you know why we ran this study, we'd love to hear from you. But here are the results. And we think the results are actually interesting, regardless of the reason we ran it. I mean, all those studies were pre-registered, by the way. So it wasn't like we were making up the analysis as we went, but we forgot why. It Explain what that is, pre-registered. So uh, just this idea that you should state publicly, uh, or at least in some time-stamped document, the analysis that you're going to do before you do it. And people do this to prevent themselves from being able to basically cherry-pick their analyses or go, oh, okay, well, this analysis didn't come out. So, but actually, you know, it really would be better if you did it a little bit this way. And now all of a sudden it gives you some results um, or the results that you wanted. Um, so it's to, to combat that. Um and, uh, and so we wrote that paper so, so that anybody can understand it and, um, and just put it on the internet. Uh, and what could have happened is nobody could have cared. They could have said, you know, I, I don't want to listen to this because it hasn't been peer reviewed. It isn't written in the way a normal paper is written. Um, there are jokes in it. I don't like that. Um, and instead, uh, I put it on this site called SciArchive, which is just a place you can put PDFs of psychology papers. Normally, people put things there before they submit it to a journal or once they submit it to a journal to, to sort of stake their claim and say, here's my paper just so you know it's time stamped and no one can scoop me because I know it's going to be a year before it comes out in any journal. Uh, we just put it there as its final resting place. Um, and uh, and I woke up the next morning to find that thousands of people had read it and were talking about it and responding to it. And they were sending me reviews. Um, people were writing in to say, I think I know why you ran study eight. Here's why. Uh, one of the few people that we cited, one of the few people who had done research that was relevant to what we did, wrote to us and was like, here's how I got involved in doing that research that, that you cited. And here's how I think you might be able to turn your effect off. I mean, it was great. It felt like the way that science should work. Um, and again, it could have worked that everybody would just ignored it. And that would have been a useful signal too, because we would have realized like, okay, this isn't useful to anybody or it isn't useful today. That, that would be fine. I think actually that is should be the modal response to scientific claims is, is neglect because most of them don't matter or we haven't figured out whether they matter or, or we, we can't use them yet or at all. Um, 
But instead, I got what are peer reviews. Like people, one person sent me an annotated PDF of the paper saying, here is what my review would be. I said, thank you. <laughs> um, and it felt so much better to, to engage in the process like that where uh, I'm open to feedback. Like I edited, we changed the paper and uploaded a new version based on the feedback that we got. What I don't want is feedback at the end of a gun uh, where the options are change your paper or else we're not going to publish it. Um, I, I just think that you should be able to, to say, yeah, I see your point, but uh, I don't agree. And I'm going to keep the paper the way it is because I think that's the right way to do it. And people can argue about it and you can and you can suffer for that choice. You know, maybe that your paper is worse and fewer people will use it. Um, but this is the way that I intend to do science going forward. And it's not the way I think that everybody should do it if they don't like doing it that way. I heard from people who said, you know, I like submitting my papers and getting them reviewed uh, in this way. And I say, great, keep doing it. Um, uh, I just think that we should have a more diverse ecosystem where people can do research in different ways, communicate in different ways. Um, and and I know what part of that ecosystem that I want to live in. Yeah, I think let's take a step back for a minute and think about how much how science has changed in terms of a as a profession. So you point out this beautiful point um, that only one of Einstein's papers was peer reviewed, and it, it annoyed him so much he published it somewhere else when he found out that the editor had sent it out. Um, and I think again one of the great insights of this short and accessible essay, for those of you at home who want to read it, we'll link to it, um, is that it wasn't always this way. And once you realize that, then you could imagine yeah. an alternative. And it's, it's a really important, I think, tool for thinking generally, much beyond these, these, much, these very narrow issues. But when we think about the world before peer review and before journals of the kind that, that exist today, there are a couple of things that strike me as as obvious. I don't know if they're important, but they're obvious. There are a lot fewer people engaged in this enterprise. Um, the ones who were engaged were really good at it. <laughs> they they were they were the creme de la creme. The ones who had fallen by the wayside weren't weren't, uh, weren't worthy of of staying in the game. The returns to the game were very small. Uh, you didn't get tenure usually. You didn't get uh, a big grant. So th there was prestige. But it was a different kind of prestige than we have today. And an academic life today is um, publication, you know, for those many of you listening who aren't academics have heard the phrase publish or perish, it's a huge incentive to, to publish. And that, quote, changes everything. I mean, it changes what you think about, how you think about it. Um, it, it pushes you toward smaller thoughts and smaller questions because the returns more safer and most people in academics are not risk takers. So in the old days, you had bolder uh, risk takers. There were fewer, smaller portion of the population. There weren't many journals. And to the extent that they were journals, they were very different. You say they might be from the Royal Society yeah. that had a strong incentive to preserving their reputation. Um, truth emerged from the interactions of these exceptional people um, either accepting or not accepting the work of their peers. So it was peer review, but not in the way it is today. Yeah. And I don't know if we can go back and put that genie um, back in the bottle, given the modern world of academic life. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, uh, I guess it's funny. Like, uh, I have very little interest in like trying to fix academia um, because it, <laughs> it feels impossible uh and it feels like you could waste the rest of your life doing it i'm glad that there are people who are interested in it uh i'd rather build something else um uh like i'd rather contribute to the ecosystem uh, i mean my dream is to build an alternative research institution that can do things differently not because i think everybody should do them that way but somebody should do them that way and i want to be one of the people doing them that way the the other thing that i would say is um uh, and this is one of the points I'd make in the piece is that uh, I think science is a strong link problem rather than a weak link problem. So in a strong link problem, you care about your best, basically. Um, uh, in a weak link problem, you care about your worst. So, I mean, a literal physical chain is a weak link problem. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. But science, I think, isn't a chain. Um, and, and basically, the worst work that we do doesn't matter. We can just ignore it. We proceed at the rate of our best work. Um, and I think a good example of this is Isaac Newton, um, you know, revolutionized a lot of things, you know, mechanics we still use. He also came up with a recipe for a philosopher's stone um, that didn't go anywhere. Uh, but it also 
didn't really hold us back. I mean, maybe, you know, it, it wasted some people's time trying to replicate his recipe for a philosopher's stone, but really what mattered was the best work that he did. And we wouldn't gain all that much if we had stopped Newton from, uh, from publishing his philosopher's stone recipe. And I feel the same way today that we actually don't gain all that much from preventing the publication of really low quality work because basically it just doesn't go anywhere. Uh, at worst, it, uh, it distracts us. We do lose a lot from preventing the publication of very high quality work. Um, and I think this is a unique set of trade-offs in science that I'm, uh, I'm not willing to give up the best in order to prevent some of the worst. I feel, I feel differently about like my doctor, for instance, for instance, um, I care a lot about going to a doctor that isn't going to harm me. And so I'm willing to give up some of the best doctors if it means I get to prevent some of the worst doctors. Um, I just think science works differently. Uh, and that in the long term, the truth wins out. I think it, that's been true historically. Uh, and so what we want to do, I think, is actually increase the variance of the work that we do, because the bad stuff basically ends up not mattering in the long run, long run and the, uh, the good stuff changes the world. Um, that's well said. You know, this is part of a larger debate that the world's been having for the last, oh, all of seven years or so <laughs> about whether social media should be filtered, moderated, should we allow untrue claims as if we could identify them with a truth meter. But, yeah. you know, people have tried to try to do such things to try to have committees and advisory boards to assess accuracy of scientific medical, so fill in the blank information on Twitter. And um, it seems like on Twitter, Facebook, social media generally, that it might be a weekly problem. You know, someone someone's going around making wild conspiracy claims that are believed by a lot of people. It's maybe not so healthy. Uh, but science does not seem to work that way, or at least it didn't in the past. And I think your point about, say, alchemy or other efforts, they, they failed. And, and the marketplace of ideas judged them harshly. The marketplace of ideas, I, I would argue, on social media is not quite as uh, resilient. It doesn't work quite as well. The incentives aren't there. But I think the the beauty of so-called science is that the experts who might vet or opine, opine on scientific reliability have reputational things at stake that are not present when they're anonymous reviewers for an obscure journal. And, and the public, uh, unfiltered kind of sharing of information you're talking about might actually work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one thing I would say about the experiment of social media is uh, it's it's still pretty new. Um, and it could still yeah. be in, in the long run that this is a period of time where, you know, we all tried something that didn't work. We all got in a room together and shouted. And that's what Twitter was. And we realized that's not the way to do things. And maybe 10 years from now, uh, we look back on this time uh, as like a wild experiment that we're glad is over. Um, which is why I, I feel less certain, much less certain about that than I feel about peer review, where I think we actually, you know, we do have maybe 50 years or so of data. We can see like, okay, that has a pretty big cost. The benefit should be pretty obvious. We can't, it's hard to find that benefit. And so maybe we should move on or at least try something else. Um, but I think it really comes, it really depends on, uh, uh, on the scale of your thinking, um, that it, it could be really true that in the short term, uh, the best work and the worst work uh, both have a similar impact. And it, it's only as you go out further um, that the best work is really what sticks around and the worst work falls away. Um, uh, Chris, yeah. Chris, the other part of that is that a journal article on your resume enhances it. I mean, there's a point where you have so many that the, the next journal article doesn't enhance, enhance it very much. But there's a strong bias for publication on the part of young scholars and um, a non-peer-reviewed system or a non-journal, I'm going to call it a journal system, a more open source system for publishing like you did, where you just say, here's what I found. I hope somebody finds it interesting. Uh, that encourages you to work on important things because mm -hmm. it's not important. People are not going to spread it around, pay attention to it if it's minutia. But a journal does pay attention to minutia. Uh, and it's, as you work down the tiers of quality, too, especially – and I think uh, the other thing that's tr you know overwhelmingly true about academic life in 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 the United States and other countries, Western countries at least, I don't know about the rest of the world, but um, it incentivizes you to work on small things that are safe and that are probably get to a result that's statistically significant. And whether it's important for the world, I think you've alluded to in passing uh, two or three times in, in our conversation. I think that's that's. It's worth breaking it out in more more intensity. 
most scholars work on tiny things that are not relatively imp- rel- relatively yeah. important. And that's tragedy. That's yeah. worse than the 15,000 hours on reviewing. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I once heard from a, a very prominent scholar uh, that you could delete half of her CV and you would lose nothing. And I thought that was the most tragic thing I'd ever heard yeah. because those papers, I mean, took years to, to write. They took maybe millions of dollars in grant money, probably came from the public, and it all just didn't matter. Uh, I mean, what if you got to the end of your life and you're like, yeah, you know, you could get rid of half of my years and you wouldn't have lost anything about my life. Um, I just don't want to do work like that. And and I, and I hate the idea of encouraging anyone to do work like that. So I, I think there are people who work in the system right now who don't feel that way and who, who feel like, you know, each thing I produce, I feel, and I say, great. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that there should be something for, for the people who want to swing for the fences or who want everything that they try to be worthwhile, whether it works or not. Um, and I'd like to be one of those people. Um, so that's, that's why I'm doing it this way. And I'm asked how old you are. I'm 31 years old. Right. So you're young, uh, <laughs> even for an academic. You're, you're yeah. at the beginning of your career, clearly a thoughtful person. Um, but writing an essay like this is high risk. Yeah. Um, it uh, and, and saying the things you're saying on this program, are, are, they're a little bit heretical for, for the church of, of academic life, the church of academic life. Kind of reaction have you gotten to this essay? Which um, let me back up. Why did you think of writing this? And did you have any (laughs) trepidation? Should have maybe. Uh, Uh, And what kind of reaction did you get? It's a gutsy thing to do. Yeah, I guess I wrote it because uh, I felt like it was true, and I didn't see anyone else see it, or see I didn't see anyone saying it. Um, And and it felt like uh, I mean you know, to the earlier part of our conversation that people have this model, this idea of how these things work. Um, and, uh, and that idea is wrong. Um, I thought that it would just be helpful <laughs> to basically give permission to people to stop believing in it. Um, and to, be, <laughs> and to say that the emperor has no clothes. Um, so that's why I, I wrote it. The, um, it's funny when, when I originally posted it, uh, you know, I write about a lot of things related to science and psychology um, in uh, on my blog, and I thought ah, this is probably going to be one that not a lot of people read. It's kind of inside baseball, and uh, and now it's been viewed by like two hundred fifteen thousand people, and uh, it's the most popular thing that I've written. Um, which goes to show you have no idea. Uh, I think what's going to be useful to people. It's also why my meta strategy has never been to try to figure out what's what is useful to people uh, or like what's going to work on the Internet and go like what gets me fired up the most? Um, like what do what sticks in my head the most and trust that I'm not that weird of a person. Um, and what's true for me is going to be true for a lot of other people as well in terms of the reaction that I've gotten. So a lot of people um, commented or, or wrote to me saying, uh, you know, like, thank you for saying this. Like I've had such bad experiences, uh, and shared terrible experiences that they had had with peer review, you know, that, uh, I said, uh, uh, one comment I got recently was, you know, I wrote this training grant. Um, so like often graduate students will apply to the national science foundation to get a grant to support their graduate education. And this person had written one of those grants with a trainee and it says, you know, at the top, like training grant and it got rejected. And the one line response that they got was, this is a good idea. If only it had been submitted as a training grant. <laughs> and, and I thought, I mean, truly just pour one out for that poor graduate student who now doesn't get this funding because someone didn't read anyway. So I, I got a lot of that and I got a lot of pushback. So literally uh, there was a tenured professor in my comments saying uh, like, Adam, are you still, um, uh, so I was a resident advisor uh, when I was in graduate school at Harvard, and uh, I think they, this person had Googled me and was like, are you still a, like a resident advisor there? I have like severe concerns about your ability to, um, uh, to you know, mentor undergraduates. Uh, I'm a Harvard alum. This is very serious. Um, and so, which was sort of galling that someone would threat. I mean, fortunately, it's not my job anymore, but threaten my job on the Internet based on writing this article. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I wrote a whole follow-up piece responding to some of these. I mean, not to the not to the threats. There's nothing really to say to it, uh, but to some of the things that people have said. Um, so a lot of people were like, "Well, could we tweak it in this way? Could we tweak it in that way? What if we did that?" To which I said, "Great! If if you believe in it, you should do it. That's what I want to. I want to live in an ecosystem of people who are trying to solve problems that they believe are problems and using solutions that they believe in." 
Um, I don't think that those things will work, but I'm just some dude. Like, if you think they'll work, like, go for them. Uh, I'm going to do this thing that I think will work. Other people um, talked about, you know, if we if we do if everyone did what you did, um, we would live in a world of chaos. This is just people saying stuff. The Wild West. The Wild West. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I I thought, man, this is um, uh, I mean, the next essay that I'm working on is called the 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 radical idea that people aren't stupid. And because I think it is a radical idea. and And I think it's historically very strange to think that we live in a world where people are capable of processing information rationally to the best of our abilities. We, you know, we don't think that the people are omniscient. Um, but this is, I think like a very long historical struggle. And I was reading a, a history essay recently about how a key part of the American revolution, a key radical idea is that people in general can benefit from education. Um, and before that there was this feeling that no, a few people are born who are capable of understanding the world properly and everyone else must be controlled by those people. Um, and part of the American revolution was, I mean, you know, th- this took a while, this wasn't at the very beginning, but to say that, no, actually, if you offer everyone a, a free and appropriate public education, um, that they can be made better. Uh, and I think there's just something beautiful and noble about that idea. And I feel similarly about producing knowledge that I know that not everybody will agree with it and it won't be useful to every single person, but I believe that people in general can benefit from it. Uh, and that I can benefit from their from their reading it and then they're commenting on it. This is why I write in regular words on my blog rather than writing, you know, scientific legalese in journals, um, <laughs> because I think I'm better for it. And they're better for it, too. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a radical idea, uh, but it's one that, that that I'm willing to die for. Yeah, the Wild Wild West thing is, um, uh, you know, as a Hayekian believer in emergent order, I think if if more people felt the way you did, other institutions, norms, and other things would emerge that from the bottom up, which is really what you're suggesting. It's a, it's an ecosystem of discovery and exploration that existed in the past. Maybe it'll work better in the in, in our time. Maybe not. You know, yeah. there are things that are different. As I said, there's more, more there's way too many PhDs, yeah. but uh, maybe it'll work. But are you claiming, not claiming, are you, are you saying that from now on, your research will not be submitted to an academic journal? And if so, do you plan to remain in academic life? Or are you hoping that it'll turn out well? Are you independently wealthy, Adam, that you haven't revealed? No. What's going no. on here? No, uh, I have one more paper in the pipeline uh, that's under review right now that I submitted a while ago. Um, my intention after that paper comes out is to never submit a paper to a scientific journal again. Um, now, look, it might happen in the future that... Uh, that like I need an academic job, and in order to do that, I need to do uh, I need to play the game. I'd rather not. Uh, and so I have uh, my my hope is that uh, I mean I write about this all on my Substack. My hope is that uh, enough people value it that I can make a living doing it there. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's possible. I think it'll still take a while. Um, and so and so I've never thought about myself as like oh I'm, I'm leaving academia um, that. I'm totally willing to teach classes, to be part of uh, an ecosystem and an institution, um, but not at the cost of writing papers that I don't believe in. Um, that's just too great a cost. I think like we we take on a lot of costs to be scientists and to be academics. Um, you know, we could all make more money doing something else. Um, we could, you know, we have prestige in our own world, but, uh, but you know, we have other options. Um, and you're supposed to get something for the trade-offs that you make. And what you're supposed to get is the freedom to say the things that you think are true. Um, and if you don't have that freedom, this life isn't worth it. Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, I'm going to say the things I think are true and uh, and see what happens. But why can't you do that via the peer review process? Why not just submit papers that you think are true? I mean, why is why is playing the journal game a violation of your um, your philosophical values? I think because in order to succeed at that game, I inevitably have to say something that I think isn't true or that I don't believe in or write a paper that I, in a way that I don't think is the best way to write it. So I spent much of the past year writing long responses to reviewers and reading their long responses to me uh, that end up with like, okay, like this is too speculative. I need to pull it back or I need to run this study that I think is not a good use of time and doesn't tell us anything, but it will satisfy this reviewer. Um, and this all takes a lot, a long time. All those months that I spend writing those comments, uh, are months that I don't spend actually producing truth. Um, 
<laughs> I also, there was a point where I published a paper last year where I spent a day arguing with a journal as to whether I was allowed to use the word years instead of always shortening it to the letter Y. Uh, and they just insisted that I had to shorten it to the letter Y, and I could not say the word years. And I had to make this case to them that I want my paper to be readable and to be readable to people who don't might not know that Y stands for years, especially when this is just in the introduction. Um, and so, and so look, I try not to be crazy. I'm willing to, you know, make some sacrifices. Um, but I'm not willing to say, to say words that I don't mean. Um, uh, and I find, you know, when I, when I write these papers and I put them on the internet, uh, I can do so, so much of a better job explaining them to people, um, and actually representing what I did than when I have to produce what, what can pass peer review, which is basically a legal contract. Um, and I've heard from people who read the last paper that I posted, uh, that were like, I read this out loud to my eight-year-old daughter and she got it. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Like, why wouldn't you want to produce something that an eight-year-old could understand? Maybe that eight-year-old could be the, the next great scientist. Uh, uh, like, why would you want to paywall it so that you can't access it in the first place and then write it in words that you can't understand? Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I want to live a life that I think is, is truer and better. And, I, and I'm willing to take on the risk to do it. My guest today has been very brave, Adam. Mastriani. Adam, <laughs> thanks for being part of Econ Talk. I salute you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.